All right, good morning, everybody. How you doing? I am good. I am good. I don't know about y'all's, but uh, our week, the last few weeks have been a blur, but we made it. We, we are here. I'm excited uh, today to jump into the narrative of Jesus's ministry as we begin chapter five. Um, if you've done any study, like if you read any of this prior to today, if you looked at any other gospels, I don't know about y'all, but I often look at like what does Luke say about this story? And then what do Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John say about this story? If you, if you did any of that this week or previously, you're going to notice that Luke gives way more detail than either Matthew or Mark. And then John doesn't mention the story um, in his gospel at all. But Luke um, is giving us the origin story of one of the great apostles, which is Peter. Today, uh, and I'll mention this again later, um, we're going to see Luke call him Simon, but his name is Simon and Simon Peter, and, and Peter is in the rock that Jesus said the church is going to be built on, all the same guy. So I'm going to do my best today to say Simon Peter, so that as we move forward in the gospel, like your brain comes back to this moment. But I want us to think about this story today in terms of Peter's origin story. Like, um, this is not, I mean, it's a good example, but it's, it, it's not like this, but remember how there was the three Star Wars movies that were awesome, and then there were the three Star Wars movies that came out years later that were like the prequels, and I, I heard a comedian talk about this one day, I can't remember his name, but he said, um, you know, when, when somebody says, do you want ice cream, the answer is yes, and then someone says, well, before you eat the ice cream, do you want to know how ice cream is made, and then tell you like 12 hours of story about how you make ice cream? No, no one wants that. Well, that's what a prequel is. It's, it is the beginning. It's where this came from. So that's today what we're looking at. But as we're, as we're getting into this this morning, here's, I titled this, this sermon today, A Glimpse of the Kingdom of God, because I want us to have that imagery in our mind, because that's what's happening in our story today with Simon Peters. He's getting a glimpse into the kingdom. And so we'll, we'll dive in in just a minute, and we're going to break all that down. Let's start today just by reading the scripture together. It's Luke chapter 5. Verses 1 through 11. It said, One day Jesus was standing by Lake Generet. The people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw the waters on, at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners from in the other boat to come and to help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they uh, began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid, from now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore and left everything and followed him. A um, couple of things as we begin. First of all, I mispronounce uh, the name of the lake. <laughs> Is anybody surprised by that? Um, it's pronounced Genesaret, but that's also known as the Sea of Galilee. So when we, and this is, I think, the only place, maybe there's one other in the, in the, in the, the Bible that calls it that. It's hard to see up here, but uh, Capernaum, which we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, is right there. Can y'all see that green pointer? 
And then, and then the place they are today is right here. And so I want to point that out because all of this ministry that's happening in this part of Luke's gospel until we get to, uh, I believe it's Luke 9, chapter 52, uh, verse 52, is all happening around the top part of this lake. And that's significant for us just to kind of know where all this is happening. I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, anytime I think about the ministry of Jesus, in my mind it was always happening in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is like way down over here somewhere. He's not even close to Jerusalem right now. And it's significant that he's up here in this area. Um, Simon, I mentioned a while ago, is the Apostle Peter. Uh, I'm going to try to, to uh, introduce him. We, we don't see his name as Peter until all 12 disciples are formally uh, introduced in Luke chapter 6. For the next couple of weeks, I'm going to try to say Simon Peter. Um, and then also, just because this is going to help form this in our mind, I've got a picture of a boat up here. Anna, if you would click that. I think it's on the next slide. When, when they talk about fishing in their boats, this is what we're talking about. I don't know about you, but my mind, I always thought canoe. I don't know why, but that's kind of the shape, or a P-Row, if you're in Louisiana, so like a flat-bottom canoe, is kind of in my mind what I always had. And we know that it's this kind of boat because in, I think it was the 80s, there was a severe drought in the region, in the Sea of Galilee, the water receded, and they found one in the water and recovered it. And so, if you can see down here, this is the boat scaled next to a school bus. So when you're thinking about filling up two boats till they almost sink full of fish, we're not talking about a canoe. That would still be a lot of fish, right? We're talking about a 26-foot long boat, seven and a half feet wide. Significant size boat, big boat, okay? Big enough to have sails and all of that. So helping us visualize that boat and seeing what it was like. I also want to point out, you see the net that he's right, throwing out right here? We would call that a cast net. There's a couple of different, I'll mention this a little bit later too, there's a couple of different ways that they fished for for fish uh, in this region at this time. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more, but I think it was a cast net, but I'll dive into that in a little bit later. Um, I, I want to point out that in this passage, there's really like five movements, five different specific things that are happening that Luke is telling us about. And you'll notice as we go through this, that all of these are processes in the abiding cycle, which is really, really kind of fun. And also, by the way, Lizzie and Alex Incredible job picking out the music today. Y'all will see that come together as we go through this. But Luke begins this narrative section by setting the stage and giving us both some social and some geographical context. Look at the first couple of verses again. In verse 1 through 3, it says, As the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear God's word, he was standing by the lake. He saw two boats at the edge of the lake. The fishermen had left them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which belonged to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from land. Then he sat down and was teaching the crowds from the boat. So there's something that's happening in these opening lines of this text. Um, and, and it's important to the context of the story about why Jesus does what he does that we understand this. The crowd, is, it says, is pressing in on Jesus. And, and it's not like, you know how some people have a bubble? And like if you're within three feet of them, you're in their bubble and they start to kind of back up and they're like, hey, <laughs> Lizzie's looking at Alex. She's like, yeah, I know about that. That's not what it's talking about. That word pressing in really means to crush. Look at, we see this same word used in Mark chapter 3 verse 9, which is Mark's version of the story. It says, then he told his disciples um, to have a small boat ready for him so that the crowd wouldn't crush him. It's the same word that's used for press in Luke chapter 5 verse 1. There's another sentiment, uh, uh, similar sentiment that's told by Mark in chapter 5, verse 24 through 31. I want to read this whole story to kind of get it back in your mind. In verse 24, it says, So Jesus went with them, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. There's that word again. Now a woman suffering from bleeding, with, from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and had not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. 
Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in a crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, and he turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, who touched me? So when, when Luke is saying that the crowd is pressing in, literally he is getting his back pressed against the water. They are pressing into him because what has been happening has been, has been the word about who Jesus is and what he's going to do is out, okay? And so what Jesus has already said and what he's already done has brought these people to him and they want to touch him. They want to get close to him. So point number one that I want to make today is that the previous teaching of Jesus sets the stage for what he's going to do next. So the crowds, the people in that region, remember he's on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, the word about what he's been doing is, is, is out. And people are wanting to, it says in, in, chapter, in verse 1, that they want to hear his words. So we're going to see in our story today as we move further into this book that as Jesus' fame spreads, the crowds become more and more intense. And this is, think about this, this is a normal reaction to this kind of thing. How many times have, have you been going through traffic and all of a sudden it slows down big time and it takes forever and you finally see like somebody had a little bitty fender bender but traffic has been backed up forever. Is it the fender bender that caused the traffic to slow down? No. What is it? It's all the rubbernecking. Everybody's like, whoa, what happened over there? And when they do that, they hit the brakes and just boom, 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 and it impacts. Our normal reaction to something that's different or something that's interesting is for us to stop and look at it. It grabs our attention. And this is the same phenomenon that's, that's happening here. It happens in spiritual matters as well. When God does something interesting, we're drawn to it. We look at it. We try to understand it. And then every time this happens, that experience, that interesting thing that God did is stacked upon all the top of everything else. Our faith journey becomes this cumulative and progressive process because all of those experiences stack on top of one another. Every time we experience one of these fascinating or awe-inspiring or sometimes even devastating events in our lives or in someone else's life, it informs us about the characteristic of God that we previously didn't know or fully understand. If you look back at your own life and you take note of these significant moments of spiritual growth, all of them are going to be accompanied by God's activity. That's how we grow. That pattern of God's activity and our growth is the typical life cycle of the follower of Jesus. And I want, us to, I want us to see that. That progression, that cumulative growth, is what a typical Christ follower's life should look like. In our text today, this pattern is what is driving the crowd to press in on Jesus. As they are seeing these actions that Jesus is doing, accompanied by the words that he's saying, and it is drawing them into who he is. And no doubt, Simon Peter has heard some of this. I want you to keep in mind that up until this point in the story, um, it's not being told in chronological order. Because if we're just thinking about this, like we think about what we learned about last week about Simon's mother-in-law being healed, you go, of course he knows. Remember, Luke picked that story out of the mix of all of the other stories to set the stage for who Jesus is for the people that are reading his book. So that, that moment that we read about last week has not yet happened in Simon Peter's lives. But no doubt, he's heard something and was interested because he agrees to take Jesus offshore. And I want us to see that drawing on our previous experiences sets the stage for even greater experiences. 
Simon Peter agrees to take Jesus out away from the shore. Moving slightly offshore is one going to give Jesus some space. It's going to get him away from, from everybody. Everyone will be able to see him. But more importantly, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but when you're out on a body of water or on a swimming pool, the water uh, allows the sound waves to travel because it's like bouncing off a hard surface. So the crowd's pressing in because they want to hear Jesus' word. And so Jesus sees the boats and he sees the fishermen and he says to Simon, hey, put me in, let's get in your boat and put me out a little bit so that I can address these crowds so they can hear his words. And this small act of obedience from Simon sets the stage for what Jesus wants to do next. Before we move on from this, I want us to consider the implications of this small act. No doubt Simon Peter was tired. They had fished all night. We see that in the scripture. Peter says that to him. They'd been out all night, and they're trying to get everything cleaned up so that he could call it a day and get some sleep. I want you to think about what it's like, especially if you've got kids, you've been working all day long, and it's that hour when you're trying to get everybody in the bed, and it's exhausting, right? Trying to get the house cleaned up, get everything in order, even if you don't have kids. If you've worked all day and you're trying to get the house cleaned up, get, get everything in order right before bed, you're worn out. And that's where Peter is in this moment. He's exhausted because he's been working hard all day. But rather than submitting to those physical needs, he powers through it and he rows Jesus out just a little bit. And this small act sets the stage for what's going to happen next. Because if he had said no, the story would have ended right there, game over, right? But look what happens next in verse 4 through 7. It said, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Master, Simon replied, we've worked hard all night long and caught nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets. And when they did this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to tear. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them out. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. So point number two that I want to make today is that radical obedience paves the way for miraculous results. It's not that we're doing something, we're not just following an algorithm or an equation. If I do this, then God's going to do that for me. But if we look at scripture, if we think about our own lives, when we've walked in obedience, we get to see what? God exclusive activity, miraculous results. Peter's a professional fisherman, okay? This is what he does for a living. Jesus is a carpenter from the hill country of Nazareth, and this carpenter is telling the fishermen when and how to fish. That's significant, right? I, I love Craig's testimony today. There's a guy who does some amazing things in the oil field industry who's trying to nail up plywood. He's looking around going, I am the least skilled of all the people to be doing this task. But it's the task that God gave him that week. We can feel this tension in Simon's response. But he chooses to do what Jesus says. Again, if Simon had said no, the story would have ended right there. There had been no miraculous catch of fish. But the willingness to act on Jesus' suggestion reveals the level of trust that we have for him. It reveals the level of trust that Peter has in him. We don't know what Jesus said or what he's teaching prior to this request. Luke doesn't give us that information. But we can tell that between it and the reputation of Jesus, Simon knew enough to trust Jesus to throw the net out. There's several methods of fishing during this time, but based on the details that were given, a cast net I think is most likely the method that Simon used. There's two other methods, but they required, uh, one of them was to put a long net out and then somebody dove in the water and physically closed the net up at the bottom themselves. And then the other one was to stretch out a long net and you had a bunch of people, like 10 or 15 people on shore, pulling the net with long ropes back up onto the shore. I don't, obviously that's not it because they pulled the net in the boat. So here's, here's what's interesting and here's why that's important to know is 
This method, if it's a cast net, is normally done in shallow water where you can see the fish. But where does Jesus tell him to go? God's deeper water, right? So he tells him, this is an odd request for two reasons. Number one, it's daytime and fishing in that region was always done at night. And number two, Jesus asked Simon Peter to use the wrong equipment in the wrong place. That's not the kind of net you would have used in that part of the water. They'd have used that up in the shallow parts where they already were. But Simon was willing to act, and then the results shocked him. Jesus' work in our lives is always going to be recognized as otherworldly. When people see God working in your life, they're going to realize that it's not you, it's something else. This catch that Simon began to pull in was something that he had never experienced in his entire life. He used the wrong net in the wrong place, and the catch was so big that it began to tear the net up. And he needs additional help to haul in the net to the boat. And God's activity of filling these nets got Simon's attention, and he called for others to come and give him a hand to finish the work that God had started in him. In this story, we have Peter, and then we've got Andrew, James, and John, and they all got to experience this God-exclusive activity because of Simon Peter's obedience to Jesus to do this weird thing to throw the wrong net in the wrong place but he listened to him and then he got to see God's activity you know I was thinking about this last two weeks with Fuge being here a lot when when going through this passage Um, and, and some of you know this and some of you don't but every morning when the teams are here um Bethany brings them in here and she shares with them God's heart for this community and what he's called us to do here and she always does um, such an incredible job of articulating that in a way that is both respectful of our community, but it shows God's passion and his love for the people that, that lived here. And it occurred to me that every year she does this every morning as part of getting the teams organized. They do that, and then we've got a list of all the jobs, and we break them up into teams and then and send them out. And every year by the end of the third day, the ministry of the church, the things that we are doing here, and by we I mean everybody in this room, the things that we are doing become real in these kids and these adults' lives. Their experience of who God is changes because of what you guys do in this community. Like all of us, they come in to hear with preconceived ideas about who God is, about who they are, and how God works in the world. All of us walk into every situation with those kind of preconceived ideas. But what happens every year is those teens and those adults come in, Bethany lays out God's heart for for the ministry that he's called us to do here, and every year by the end of only three days, these people's view of who God is and how he can work through them is completely different. Now, no doubt, the fact that they're at camp has a lot to do with that. If you've ever been to a summer camp or a mission trip or something like that, you know that when you spend four or five days completely focused on God, it changes your outlook on life completely because there's such an intense focus. There's not all the normal distractions that you have. I don't want to take away from that at all. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. But as they experience God here through the ministry of our church, their lives are changed. Their hearts are changed. They begin to see this community the way God does. They begin to see themselves the way that God does. They begin to see that when God asks them to put up plywood, when that's not what they're gifted in doing, that he's going to use them anyway. And that it's beneficial and it's good for the kingdom. God's got them using the wrong tool in the wrong spot, but it works out because God is God. 
This experience of God-exclusive activity while they're here causes them to want more. And this is exactly what's happening in our story with Simon Peter. He thought he knew who Jesus was. But when he obeyed, his eyes were open to see more of who Jesus was, to expand that knowledge. And he was shaken by that experience. Point number three today is that transformation and humility follow God's exclusive activity. Those teams that come here through the years have seen God change their hearts. We've seen it change their hearts just over the course of a couple of days. And as they experience God through worship at camp, and through God's activity here, their understanding of who God is is transformed. And often, this has happened the last couple of years, what ends up happening is those teams will come to Bethany and say, hey, my church is not that far away. Can we come back again and do some more work here? Yeah, absolutely. And they're not doing that just because Bethany's a nice person. She is. They're doing that because they are experiencing something here that they've not experienced before. And church, it's not unique to this building or this geographical location. What they're experiencing is God-exclusive activity. That's what's drawing them in. As Simon Peter and his partners pull in this miraculous catch of fish, Simon Peter's eyes are opened, and he responds in a familiar way. Look at it again in verse 8 through 9. It says, when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me because I am a sinful man, Lord. For he and all those who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish they had taken. Falling on his knees and asking Jesus to go away, first of all, is kind of funny. Where are they at? In a boat. Where's Jesus going to go? I mean, it's a big boat. He could go to the end of it, but it's starting to sink because it's full of fish, right? But Peter has this response that we see all through Scripture. Look at Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5. When people see and experience the presence of God, they always react in this way. Isaiah 6, 5 says, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among the people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the king of armies. This is when Isaiah sees the presence of God. He experiences it, and he's like, Get me out of here. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 28 through 2, 2. He says, The appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow and a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. When I saw it, I fell face down and heard a voice speaking. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak with you. As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet and I listened to the one who was speaking to me. Or Revelation chapter 1, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Falling face down before God is how many of the prophets of old had responded to God. And this was the natural response for Peter when he realized who God was. Realization of what God has done radically alters our knowledge and our understanding of God. At this moment, the person of Jesus is revealed to Simon Peter. More importantly, the godliness of Jesus is, report, is revealed to him. And this activity proves to Simon that this is no simple fishing trip anymore. It's the very presence of God on that boat with him. And what he knew about Jesus was radically changed in an instant. As this new understanding flooded through him, another experience took over. Okay? And that experience for him and for us, exposes our inner selves. 
Simon was instantly aware of his sin and wanted to be as far from Jesus as possible. Just like those other examples we read about encountering God's presence, their sinful nature being exposed brings about this humility and fear. We can see this vocalized in this sentiment through Job uh, chapter 42, verse 5 through 6. He said, I heard the reports about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I reject my words and I'm sorry for them. I am dust and ashes. One of my commentaries said, Peter's sense of his own sinfulness was not due to his, his disobedience when he said, I've been fishing all night, but I'll do it because you, you asked, but to a general unworthiness as he has confronted uh, the Lord's might and majesty. So it's not something that Peter did in that moment. It is him, just like the prophets, like Isaiah vocalized, I am unclean and I am in the presence of something holy. The facades are all washed away when we're standing in the presence of God. But we're not left there wallowing in our sin. Jesus responds by telling him, don't be afraid. Look at verse 10 and 11. He said, and so were James and John, sons of Zebedee, were Simon's partners. Don't be afraid, Jesus told them. From now on, you will be catching people. Then they brought the boats to the land, left everything and followed him. And this response of don't be afraid brought the assurance of forgiveness of his sins. Point number four is that Jesus' grace and forgiveness reveal his love and bring a desire to follow. So I think I've shared some of this with you guys before. When I was um, in high school, I think probably a junior in high school, is when I really learned what it meant to encounter the presence of the Holy Spirit, specifically during during worship. Um, I've given my life to Christ when I was in the sixth grade, had grown up in the church my whole life. I'd been to as many worship services as most people can count. Uh, I, I'd been to all of them. But we had a new youth pastor that came in my, my junior year of high school, and he introduced me into what it meant to engage the presence of God through song and through prayer. I had never experienced that before. Everything else I had experienced was we're singing a song that was in the book, right? And the words, I mean, I could read them and I understood their meaning, but they had no meaning in my heart. Does that make sense? And so as I learned to, to enter in the presence of God, it changed my whole experience. My mom used to make fun of me because every Wednesday night I'd come home from youth and she'd be like, how was church tonight? And I'd say, same thing every time. Oh, so awesome, mom. And I really meant like I was in awe of what I was experiencing with God because I had no idea prior to that, that one, that I could talk to God in that way. And, and secondly, that he would respond in kind. I had no clue. I didn't, I never understood what it felt like to physically feel the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. I didn't know that was a thing that could happen. And it changed what I knew of God. These simple words that Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, don't seem like they carry that much love on the surface but think about who's saying it I, I quote this out of this chapter all the time but first john chapter 4 verse 7 john says dear friends let us love one another because love is from god and everyone who loves has been born of god and knows god the author of love love himself is the one who is saying don't be afraid don't be afraid and those those three little words have so much more meaning than just what's on the surface. They carry all of this love. Simon was seeing the kingdom of God that the world had not yet realized. A, a glimpse of God's kingdom here on earth outshines any offering of the world. Peter sees in this moment God's activity and experiences God's love and forgiveness through Jesus. 
And when he saw what Jesus did combined with what he'd been teaching throughout that area, he was convinced at that moment that Jesus was the Son of God. And I think that Luke includes this story when others left it out because he wants there to be a record of what brought Peter to Jesus, this rock, the foundation of the church, into his faith in Jesus. This moment was the catalyst that changed Simon Peter's life forever. This is what set everything in motion for him. All that had been important to him before no longer was. And that's because the result of that glimpse is a heart that is aligned with Jesus' heart. I was thinking about this this morning when I was going through this. Do y'all remember in The Wizard of Oz when Dorothy is in the, the big green castle thing and she sees the guy behind the curtain? Y'all remember that? I, he's got like this big booming voice and it's really scary. And then she realizes it's like this little sniveling guy behind a curtain. And he's like, no, don't look behind the curtain. You know, and she rips open. It's kind of like that. It's like our whole lives we have this idea of who God is. But as soon as we get that little glimpse behind the curtain, it changes our full understanding for Dorothy in that setting like this big booming scary thing became nothing just became this guy and for us we have this idea growing up about who God is but as soon as we get that glimpse like Peter did it completely changes our understanding of who he is his previous experiences with Jesus left no room for doubt anymore in this passage we read last week when it said that Peter's mother-in-law had had a, five fever, had a high fever, and it says that they brought Jesus to his mother-in-law, you know why that happened? Because Peter knew if anybody can fix this, it's Jesus, because he'd had that glimpse behind the curtain. While Peter certainly has had some missteps along the way, as he's growing in his understanding of Jesus' ministry, one thing is absolutely certain. Peter loves Jesus, and he is fully dedicated to the ministry that Jesus called him to. Even though he messed up, we're the same way. I don't know if y'all know that or not, but we mess up too, just like Peter did. We have our missteps. But then we find ourselves at the end of this passage in verse 11. And, and I just want to say for us in our culture, this is the most difficult part of the whole thing. Verse 11 says, then they brought the boats to the land and they left everything and they followed him. This is hard for us. But I know that there are people in this room who know by experience that when you have these kinds of moments with God, when you glimpse behind the curtain, when you see the kingdom of God, nothing else matters anymore. And leaving everything to follow Jesus no longer feels like such a huge request. When we get a glimpse of that kingdom of God, we're obsessed with it in the best way possible. A few weeks ago, I shared some testimony about a, a friend that I had a relational meeting with, and she was describing like how she felt when we would go into those interfaith meetings and how much joy and, and benefit she got out of that. And I, I got to help her understand that what she was experiencing was the kingdom of God. It was this unconditional love of God's people because it's unmistakable. Y'all know what that feels like. When you walk into life group and you've had a hard week and those people love on you or you go into life group and your whole life group knows that you've made a big mistake but they don't, they don't care about the mistake because they love you, that's the unconditional love of God. It's him pouring himself out through his people. That love is coming from God through his agents, fulfilling their God-given directive, which is to love God and to love one another. There's nothing that brings more satisfaction in life than those moments. I want to wrap up today with this thought from one of my commentaries. When I read this, it just kind of made me pause and think. 
He said, for Luke, everyone who is a Christian is called to follow Jesus, both apostles and non-apostles. The particular kind of calling may vary, but all are called to the same commitment. All the people that get a glimpse of the kingdom are called by God to be a part of it. Not only a member, but an active participant in the kingdom. The kingdom doesn't have those that only critique and complain. They are not there. The kingdom is a group of people who have been changed forever by God's love and are committed to sharing that love with as many people as possible. Some of us are going to have official titles like pastor, but most will just be regular people who love God and love others. This brings me back to the point that stood out above all the rest in this passage as I read through it this week. I saw it firsthand over the last few weeks. When Peter obeyed Jesus and saw the work that would be required to pull in those fish, who did he call? His partners, right? James, John, and Andrew came and helped Peter complete the task that Jesus had put before him. As I shared with you earlier, this is exactly what's been happening over the last several years with Infuge, is these people are coming in and they're seeing the work that God's doing here and they're joining us in that. They're getting a glimpse in the kingdom and they're going, man, I, I want to be a part of that. Can I come back and be a part of that again? We see this happening in our body as well. As, as people are fulfilling a ministry that they feel called to and it becomes overwhelming, what, do you, what, do, what does the church do? You jump in and you help them out because that's what God's called us to be. And we're not doing it because we're supposed to. We're doing it because we love one another. This happened yesterday as uh, Bethany and Colleen and Craig went to help with the backpack event that PDC put on. There's a group of people that God has called to do ministry with us in this place. And God gave them a specific task and they're fulfilling that task, but they needed some help. And so our church went to go and help be a part of that. It's not their specific calling, but we're called to one another, to love one another. James and, and John and Andrew were not on the boat with Jesus. At least we don't think they were. They were on the shore still. Andrew might have been there. That's debatable. But James and John certainly weren't. And they didn't get the directive from God to throw the, the nets out and pull in the fish. But when they saw the work that was required, they came running and they helped. And because they helped, because they partnered with him, they got to experience God-exclusive activity. All of us, partners in ministry, assist one another to complete the, God, the call that God has put on our lives. That call and the subsequent participation are changing our understanding of who God is, and it's revealing God's nature to everyone that we encounter. These partnerships are created as we follow Jesus, being willing to leave behind everything. Church, having your name on the membership roll or going to worship on Sunday mornings or being a part of a life group, those things don't make you a follower of Jesus. Those are some of the things that a follower does, but that doesn't define what a follower is. A follower of Jesus is one that experiences God's activity and determines for themselves that God is worth more than anything else this world could offer to just know more, to be in his presence more, to leave everything and follow him. The glimpse of the kingdom, knowing Jesus and making 
him known, become a follower of Jesus' greatest ambition. Through their obedience, the people around them get to see a glimpse of the kingdom as well. Don't settle for anything else than the kingdom of God. Because what this world has to offer is always going to let you down. If you're a follower of Jesus, make that your life's ambition. To know him and to make him known. That's where you're going to find satisfaction. That's where the world is going to find everything that they need. It's not in the stuff. It's in the person of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I know that it's so easy to be distracted by all the stuff we have going on in our lives. And I ask that this week as we're spending time with you, that you would give us glimpses into the kingdom. Let us see behind the curtain to understand what you're doing and who you are. And that 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 glimpse into the kingdom would be what drives us to know you more and to help others to see you more. And Father, as we are going through life and we see our our partners in ministry fulfilling a task that you've given them and it's overwhelming them, Father, I ask that you would help us to, to have the resolve to dive headlong in with them and to help them as they're doing their ministry. And Father, through that, all of us would get to experience more of you and the people who don't know you that do life around us would get to experience you. Jesus, give us the, the willfulness that you gave Peter to obey, even when we're not 100% sure, to trust you and to step out in faith. Jesus, I ask these things in your name. Amen.